Thanks, praise team, for leading us into a thought of the bigness of God and how we we need to we need to stop every now and then. We need to think about just who God is and the God that we worship. And we we go through the motions week after week. I know, and we we're taught as children to talk about the bigness of God and how He's way past our understanding. And but really, how big is your God? I don't mean that there's like a multitude of gods. There's a God for every person in this room. But really, in your heart and your life, how big is your God? The God that you live, the God that you pray to, the God that you follow, the God that you know. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe it's not so much that we need to ask the question, how big is your God? Because if there is a God, then He is humongous. He is past measurement, okay? He is infinite. But it's maybe the question is, how big is the God that you know? That may be the bigger issue. And you, you talk to an atheist, and they, it's really a simple answer for them, there is no God. That's what an atheist would believe, that there is no God. Now, when you talk to an atheist, and you really kind of break down that, that, that thought, that linear, that thought, that argument of their mind, it, to me it's almost an oxymoron to say that you're an atheist. Because to be an atheist is to say, absolutely, there isn't a God. And when I would talk to an atheist, I would say, well, that would mean that you have searched high and low, that you probably know everything there is to know about the universe, and that therefore you actually must be God because you know it all. And they'll say, no, 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 I don't know it all, but, but I, the, there isn't a God out there. Well, I'll say this, if you don't know it all and I don't know it all, maybe in, maybe in the realm of what you don't know, maybe there is where you will find God. And then you can move somebody from an atheist to an agnostic, at least making inch-by-inch inch steps just in that argument. Uh, Tim shot me an email this past week showing this uh, quote. Throw it up there, guys. Um, the belief of an atheist, this is atheism, the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded uh, for no reason creating everything and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself that reason no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits which then turned into dinosaurs. So that's atheism maybe to a point. I'm not trying to make fun of it. There's some people who have truly rationalized it in their mind that this is the thought. But I even like Isaac Newton whenever he made this statement. He says, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince one that their God exists. If we just really dove into just trying to understand the simplest part of the thumb, then we would have to realize that we don't know it all and that maybe in what we don't know, maybe that's where God exists. But how big is your God? For an atheist, he's not very big at all. For an agnostic, he may or may not even be out there. For a hedonist, oh, well, that's easy. Pleasure is my God. Just whatever is, feels good, whatever tastes good, whatever, whatever I want, whatever brings me pleasure, I deserve it, you deserve a break today. You know, any of the marketing schemes that are out there would tell you 
that you are actually God, and therefore go for it in your life. That's what a hedonist would say. Islam would say that there's only one God, and Allah is his name. That's their number one creed. A humanist would say that I am God. Hedonism would say, or Hinduism, excuse me, would say that there are hundreds of thousands of gods, and they would have to ask the question, which God are you talking about? So when you get into this world of God, and you start talking about Him, you have to almost define what God are you talking about. So I want to ask you again today, how big is your God? How well do you know your God? Do you know your God well enough that you could describe to a ranked stranger, to an atheist, to an agnostic, who God is? I'm not saying you would be able to convince them, but from your heart and from your life and from your life experiences, could you describe God for them? If I was to explain who God is in my own life experiences, I would say God is my Father. In this life of having an inconsistent Father in my life and being there, an absentee Father, whatever, whatever, I learned to appreciate that God being my Father. I realized that God is omnipotent in my life. Whenever He called me a person who was far questionable in character, questionable academically, questionable in every sense of the word, and God would call me to be a teacher of His Word. He's got to be omnipotent because there's no way I could do what He was asking me to do. He's my all-sufficient provider. When I think about how He provided for me, a wife of 20 years, He provided for me truly my helpmate. She completes me. God is my Savior of the world. I realize that He is not just the Savior of Mike McDaniel, the Savior of the McDaniel family, the Savior of Northwest Arkansas, the Savior of my little world. He's the Savior of the world. He sent me to Africa to enlarge my understanding that God is a God of the universe. And so that's the kind of God that I have met in my life. That's the God that, that I worship. The God of the Scriptures is all, all right here contained in this book. But sometimes we don't know that, God. It's all just facts and figures and stories and, and convoluted systematic theology that kind of weaves itself in this world. But then I even realize that God is beyond it all. That God is, God is not even just my sufficient provider, my Father. He's not, he's not even that. I can't even contain Him in the box of that. That I have to, when I identify and, and, and understand who God is, that I just have to say, beyond. He's beyond my comprehension. He's beyond my understanding. He's beyond my limitations. He's beyond my reason. When you think about Moses, whenever Moses was talking to the burning bush, uh, the burning bush was talking to him, excuse me, in, in the desert, and, and, and the burning bush was telling him, you know, you need to go to Pharaoh, and you need to do this, and you talk to this. Now, again, you got to remember, he's a little shepherd boy. He was chased out of town because the Pharaoh was going to kill him. It was all this. He had no reason to go back and to see Pharaoh. He had been 40 years in hiding in the desert. And God said, I mean, he said, I can't do this and I can't do that. He starts throwing up all these excuses to God. God was just saying, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. I'll, I'll provide for you. And then finally he runs out of excuses and he says, but, but when I get before Pharaoh, I don't even have an excuse to why I can be there. Who, who can I say sent me? You can say, I am. I am what, God? I am. I am that I am. Well, who's that? That is whatever you need, Moses. That is wherever you are, Moses. I am. 
That means whatever you need, Moses, I am. I am that I am that I am that I am. That I, there is no nothing I can. There's no way you can contain me. There's no way you can you can restrain me. There's nothing in this world. I am that I am that I am that I am. That God is beyond. I'm afraid that in our little bitty busy worlds, we don't know God like that. We miss that that God of of the I am and. And sometimes I wonder, do we do that to ourselves? Have we grown out of that that ability? I mean, think about it. Have we grown out of the ability to venture into the unknown? We've reached some security level, I don't know, whatever it is. We've grown out of it. You take a child, a little boy named Johnny was, was working feverishly in class one day, drawing this picture, and his teacher looks over his shoulder and says, what are you drawing? He said, I'm drawing God. The teacher, with kind of a heaviness of her heart, didn't want the boy to be discouraged, said, you know, Johnny, nobody knows what God looks like. You can't draw. You can't draw God. And so he looked up at her very intently before he went back. He said, when I'm done, they will. And I think about that, and I think about a child who is in deep exploration, deep intent, and deep determination that he is going to know and he is going to find out and he is going to draw out who God is. Take your Bibles and we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3. As we've been going through this Ephesians study, Ephesians 3, we'll finish up and we'll be halfway through the book after the end of our message today. Not that it is getting through the book is the mission, getting to the good life is the mission. And understanding that the good life involves a boundless, limitless, beyond God is absolutely one of the secrets of the good life. That there is not anything that will be in my life, there's not anything that I will be challenged with, there's not anything that I will experience that I cannot rest assured that God is in it. That God is about it and God is aware of it. And I think one of the ways that we really can put our arms and put this into practice, put our arms around it, put this into practice in our everyday life. And again, this is maybe, as soon as I say this, it's going to be simplicity is going to run through this room real quickly. But hang with me. Because if we knew experientially, Personally, deeply, convictionally, if we knew the power of this, fill in the blank, we would be far more fervent about this than just talking about it, than just asking people to help us with it. We would truly carve out time in our day, daily, throughout the day, ongoing, we would be faithful to it. And this it prayer. Paul starts his book with prayer, the book of Ephesians with prayer. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, he's praying again. Paul is the one who raised the bar under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who told us to pray and to never stop praying. He said, pray without ceasing, he told the church at Thessalonica. What is this that Paul is writing and he can't even finish writing because he constantly breaks into prayer? 
He does it in chapter 1. He's doing it now again in chapter 3. He is ongoing, constantly in this communication with God, this mystical relationship with God. And he is understanding the power that is in prayer. And when you come to Ephesians chapter chapter 3, we, we find here the prayer that, 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 he's, that he's unfolding. And there's really kind of two parts to this prayer, if you will. There's a petition part, and then there's a praise part. And I want to first of all talk about the petition part for just a second. So let's, let's, let's look at this passage and follow along as I read. For this reason, I bow my knees. You can see him kind of even going in to a posture of prayer before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. He kind of puts us real quickly back to our original source, and therefore we need to go back to our original source. And what he does now is in a matter of three statements, three key statements. Now it may look as if as you read through this as I did first time through, it seems like he's got a lot of prayer requests he's putting out there. There are three main requests, all separated by a henna Greek clause here, but or you could see it in the English by the word that. He says, that according to the riches of of his glory, he may grant to you strength and from excuse, grant to you uh, excuse me that he may grant to be. Let me say this again: He may grant to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And here's the second one: so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled, here's that third statement, that, 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 that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Prayer petitions is something that we need to understand that prayer, when we give out a petition, we are acknowledging something about ourselves, that we need God. We are needy people and we need to have a relationship with God. That is a need of us. And the problem is we we live in this world and we become so self-sufficient in and of ourselves. But we need God. We need to realize that. And what Paul does here real quickly is he breaks into this this need for God, and he tells us how we need God. He starts praying. He says, I, I, I pray that you're strengthened with power. I, I pray that you, in your inner being, I, I pray that you will comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the, width, the, the length, the height, the depth, uh, and, and to know Christ, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, now folks, there's a lot right there, and I could share an entire message just on Paul's three petitions. But if you don't know what to pray for someone, if you don't know what to pray for yourself, if you don't know what to pray for me, would you do me this favor? Would you pray that Mike would be strengthened with power from God? Would you you, underscore these statements? Verse 16, strengthened with power. If you don't know what to pray for me, Say, Mike's going to face some things this week. My children are going to face some things this week. My spouse is going to face some things this week. And, and, and dear God, they don't have enough strength. I know them. <laughs> They're weak, just as I am. And they need strength. And so if you don't know what else to pray for somebody, pray that they will be strengthened 
with the power that comes from God. But here's another thing. He goes on, he says, he, he continues his prayer, and he says, also, verse 17, that, this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What happens when that happens? That you will be being rooted and grounded in love and may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ. The second thing, if you want to pray for me, and these are not in your notes, you can jot these on the side or you can just underscore this. Pray that Mike would comprehend the height, the depth, the width of the love of God. That I would understand God, that I would embrace God, that, I, that God's, God's so fast our understanding that I would just somehow understand Him and comprehend Him. Pray that your children would understand Him and comprehend Him. But also, if you want to pray for me, pray the last one as well. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. With all the fullness of God. That I would just be full of God and not full of myself. Full of Him and less of me is so much better than being full of me and not enough of Him. These are just some petitions. These are some things that we can do every day of our life. If we understood the power of prayer, then I would believe that we would understand God at a deeper level. But it's not just prayer and asking God for the things that we need in life. Petition is absolutely one of those things that Christ expects of us. And we're even told in Scripture that many times we don't have because we don't ask. So let's get on the asking side of things. Now, sometimes we're pretty good at that. But I want to spend kind of the rest of our time today not focusing on the petitions, but focusing on the praise. Because there's an effect that happens in our life whenever we are full of God. And when, when God is big in your life, something happens in your life. When God is big in your life, He will be big on your lips. Whenever He is giving you the strength and you're comprehending Him and you're full of Him, and all of a sudden now you're beginning to understand the height, the depth, the width of who God is, as Paul was praying there. All of a sudden now you're full of Him and less full of yourself. What happens now is your life is full and now all of a sudden from your lips you will begin to praise Him. And Paul does something here that he does so many times in Scripture. Remember, Paul's that, 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 that banner-carrying, bar-setting prayer warrior, the one who told us to pray without ceasing. And he's the very one. And what does he do? Constantly in his writings. He does it in 1 Timothy 1.17, 2 Timothy 4.18, Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Galatians chapter 1.5, Philippians chapter 4.20, he breaks into this spontaneous praise. Because what happens in praise, when praise happens, is we are truly knowing Him. We know Him. We know Him deeply. We're full of Him. Praise is not just merely standing in this room and listening to a band and, and trying to sing some new hip song. Praise is so much more than that. It's, it's something that comes out of your life naturally. That's why we talk about bringing your worship to church and not coming to church to worship. And what we see in this passage is a beautiful, when we see the extremes of God, we see God in, in, in a more full light in this next two verses. And I want you to jot down these two extremes of God because maybe today we'll not be able to draw out the picture of God like little Johnny is venturing into. 
But hopefully today we can begin to understand Him a little deeper. And He will fill us up a little fuller. When we walk out of here a little bit more complete. First thing we need to understand is that God is beyond our limits. We live in a world of limits. All we know are limits. But we live with an unquenchable God who is way beyond our limits. We live in a day with 24-hour limits. Our days have limits. Our months have limits. We know that at the end of every month we're looking for the next paycheck. And sometimes we run out of paycheck before we run out of month. And so we run out of money. So money is a, is a limit that we deal with. Moments have limits. Wait, next time you get pulled over by the police and the blue lights are behind you, you will realize that speed has limits. Time has limits. Money has limits. Days have limits. Our life, next time you go to a funeral, you will realize again you'll be faced with the reality that, that breath has limits. But we are dealing with a God who is beyond limits. We worship a God who is beyond limits. Job chapter 9 verse 10 says, Who does great things, unfathomable, wondrous works without number. That's the God that we have. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we know. If you look at verse 20, look at this. I love this statement here because it's like as Paul was trying as best he could as he's writing this out here. He's trying as best he can to, to, to just emphasize who God is. Now to him who? Who? Who's the who? The who that he's speaking of is God. Now to him who is able. Who? Who? The one we're talking about is God and he is able. Now that's enough there. He didn't have to go any further with that. Now to him who is able. But not only that, he goes on, he goes and pushes a little bit further and he says now to him who is able to do. Who's able to do what? Who's able to do far? Who's able to do what? Far more. Who's able to do far more what? More abundantly. Who's able to do far more abundantly than we can even ask or we can even think. Do you see the progression of what Paul's doing here? To him who, to him who's able, to him who's able to do, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. It's like, God, we cannot contain you. You are beyond our limits. You are beyond our expectations. F.F. Bruce, probably one of the foremost Greek New Testament scholars of the 20th century, said it is impossible to ask God for too much. His capacity for giving far exceeds His capacity for asking, our capacity for asking or even imagining. There's There's two things we need to understand about the limitations that God is beyond our comprehension. We will not be able to comprehend their everything about God or to be able to put Him into any kind of box. He is beyond our comprehension. God will do things, allow things to happen in this world that will not make sense to us. Why the tsunami happened and thousands of people are dead because of that in Japan, I, I have no clue. Why He would allow good things to happen to bad people and bad things to happen to good people, I can't explain. I've done funerals of children before, and I'll tell you, there's nothing harder than doing a funeral of a child. You have to stand over the coffin. You you have to be God's answer man to the people to explain. Because there's this expectation. Why did God take this young life? And I have no answer. 
because there are things that are far beyond my comprehension. The good is beyond my comprehension. Why He would bless me is beyond my comprehension. Why He would hurt me is beyond my comprehension. I don't like it. I don't like it. I like it when He blesses me. I don't like it when He doesn't bless me. It's beyond my comprehension. I need to realize that God is beyond my understanding and my limitations. Psalm chapter 139, verse 4 and 6 says, Behold the Lord, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. My my brain would explode if I understood everything that you understand, God. God is beyond my comprehension. God is beyond our power. He does little things with big people and big things with little people, and I don't understand that. How God would reach into this world. Little is much when God is in it. You've heard that phrase before. John Hunter in his book, Limiting God, he says, if God is limited in what He can do for you, then He most certainly, He will be limited in what He can do. Listen, I don't want to limit God and what He can do through me. But my fear is, is that, listen to this, my friends. My fear is that I might actually limit what God could do through me because I've limited in who God is to me. Now what I'm asking you to do is to stretch your soul today. To stretch your spirit today. To open yourself up today to something that God may have You've never even dreamed or thought of because God may be asking you through a burning bush to be a Moses to do something you've never done before. And you're saying, how can I do it? And He's just saying, I am. What is it? See, that's what happens when prayer is a part of our life. We begin to see God answer in our life and do things in our life. And all of a sudden our life is full. And then all of a sudden when our life is full, our lips begin to flow off praise. And we understand God far deeper than we would have otherwise. Robert Dick Wilson. Robert Dick Wilson was an Old Testament scholar at Princeton Seminary, and he would many times go to the chapel of his graduates when they would speak in chapel, and he would talk to them. And, or excuse me, he would sit there and he would listen to them speak. And, and one time, Barnhouse was speaking. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the great pastors, Presbyterian pastors of years gone by, and he was speaking in Miller Chapel, and he wanted to know why Robert Dick Wilson would be there to hear him speak, and this is what he said, he said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I will know where their ministry will be. My question in your life today, are you a big godder, or are you a little godder? In your family life today, are you a big godder? Are you a little godder? The limiting work of God may not be God, but it may be you and your willingness for God to do in and through you things that you have never even thought of, never even dreamed of. Get to know Him today. He's beyond us. Even Job, in the midst of his own tsunami of life, he said this in Job 5, verse 9. He said, We cannot understand the great things He does. To do His miracles, there is no end. 
to live with a God of great miracles. He is beyond it. He's beyond our power. He's beyond our comprehension. He's a big God, but He's a big Godder to me. I want us to understand that the extremes of God is that that God is way past us. But also know this, that He is beyond our focus. He is beyond our focus. Now, we need to understand something in, in the world in which we live. We are, I am, I am as a baby buster, a product of the baby boomer generation. If you're born after 1964, you're a product of the baby boomer generation in some degree or another. And since then, we have Generation X and Generation Y, and now we're having the millennial generation, which is are my children coming out and going into college. This millennial generation is the new generation. And as you think about the generations that are out there, the boomer generation is that generation that for, for many were, were known as the generation of the me generation. The ones who made the wealth coming out of the Great Depression. It was Tom Brokaw in his book, The Greatest Generation Ever, who talked about the builder generation, the generation who survived World War I and World War II and survived the Great Depression and had such great character. But somehow through that generation that followed, that me generation, the boomer generation, wealth became focused and it became about me, myself, and I. Well, what do you think happens when you have a generation of me, myself, and Iers? You produce me, myself, and Iers. And it just becomes a, re- a reoccurring, reinventing of ourselves again and again and again. And one generation just almost what we do in moderation, the next generation does in excess. It's a, it's a sad tell of, of, of what happens. But we need to understand that God is beyond our focus. See, our focus so many times is is on our own little worlds and our own little successes and our own little accomplishments. But where is God wanting to do His greatest work? Who is God wanting to do it through? This God who is the I Am, the one who is able, the one who is far abundantly more able, the one who is far abundantly greater than anything we can ask or think. What is He wanting to do and where is He wanting to do it? Verse 21 gives us a glimpse because he says to him, be the glory in the church. In the church. That's where his glory is going to be. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. See, the focus so much is on ourselves and what is in it for me and how do I gain out of it. But what, what God wants to do is some of his greatest work in his church. And we as followers of Christ, and and those who are part of the church of Grace Point in the very beginning can appreciate this. Those who are part of the church, and I don't know, that's for a show of hands, I even looked across the congregation today and I would say maybe one or two or three hands might go up. Most of you in this room came into this gathering since we've been in this building. But there was a generation of Grace Point for five years that didn't know a building. We lived out of a suitcase. We lived out of the back of a trailer. We lived portable. And that generation realized that the church is not the building, but a people. That generation of grace pointers realized that. And they also realized that buildings are not spaces to occupy, but they're tools to use. Now the problem is, is that happens when people enter into a church building is we kind of tend to reverse that. The church becomes, the building becomes the church. 
and we begin to use people. And we need to realize that the people are the church and we use buildings. There is a tremendous paradigm shift that happens that I have to continue to push us back to. That it is not about the building. The building is a toolbox. The building is a helper. The building helps us get further, and the building has helped us. The ministry campus has expanded our ministry, has enlarged our outreach, has increased our discipleship, has supported our members, has enhanced our worship. It has done all that. And we have come to a point in our time, in the growth of our church, that we are at a point of we are going to be needing to build. And it's exciting today to tell you that, you know, as you can look, at there's two annex buildings that are being added out there, and that's all nice and good, and except and it's, what's even better is that we pay cash for it. We ask the church for permission to be able to, uh, to, to get a small loan to be able to do that. But the great thing is, is our people have been so generous, we're going to be able to pay cash for it. So that's great news. Those annex buildings are going to be great because what we've been having to do is turn away families every Sunday consistently. We have had overcrowding issues. And it's not fun if you're the one sitting behind the registration desk having to tell a family, I'm sorry, we have no more room for you. We've got some issues, some opportunities, some great issues, some great opportunities. And God wants to do some great work through His church. And we are His church. You know, the great thing is we throw out annexes all day long out there. Except the fact that the city will only let us have them up for three years. So we've got a three-year window that we're going to have to respond to it. And so I'll tell you today that the officers of the church have come together. We have, we have appointed a, a design and execution uh, team that we look forward to beginning the process immediately of studying what it's, take, what it's going to take to expand our campus. Now, I say that to you today, not with a lot of hooray in me, because I'm looking forward to it like another hole in the head, all right? This is very tiresome process, building a toolbox. But folks, it is a toolbox to be used in ministry. It is a toolbox that we're going to be able to use to expand our ministries, to do even more than what we are doing currently. Let me tell you the next, and I'll be finished. There's one other element when we understand that God is beyond our focus and He focuses through His church. He wants His glory to be seen through His church. And I know He's not talking about building. I've made that very clear. He's talking about the people. The people we have used the building as a toolbox. And again, 90% of the people in this room are enjoying the toolbox of this room right this minute. But it's not about the toolbox. It's about the people. And God wants His glory to be known. God wants His glory to be known in future generations, in the next generation. Look at me the last part of verse 21. He said, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. We need to understand the power and the value of generations. We need to understand the power of the next generation and the next generation, and the next generation. That it's not the me generation, it's the next generation. And when we build, we're building for the next generation. And when we add staff, we're adding for the next generation. It's about the next generation. 
And there's a window of opportunity that we cannot miss. And it's that younger generation that we can't miss. We've talked about the 1040 window at Grace Point Church. You know about the 1040 window. It's the, it's the window of lostness in the world. I want to introduce to you today that there's a 412 window. It's not Highway 412. It's the ages from 4 to 12. The 412 window is that generation of when most decisions are made for Christ is in that generation right there. And we have got to be in that eight-year window doing our very best to reach, to care for, to raise up, to disciple that generation. Moral, listen to this. Moral values of a person are generally decided by the time they're nine years old. Foundations of spiritual beliefs and commitments are typically ingrained by the time they're 13 years old. Relational habits and patterns are molded by the age of 13. So much of life is made in those early years, and we've got to be a church that realizes the value of the next generation. When we built this building, we did not realize that every square foot of this building is being used for the next generation. My office on Sunday night is used for a small group Bible study for the senior high girls for the next generation. There's not a square inch of this building that's not being used at some point during the week for the next generation. In the next building, it will be the same thing. It's for the next generation that we must be aware. I posted an article on my Facebook this past week from the BBC that indicated that there are nine nations that missiologists have identified and researchers have identified that these nine nations in the next years will no longer have enough Christians in them to reproduce themselves. Nine nations, the Netherlands, Canada, Australia, developed nations. You know what happens? When we as a church lose sight of the next generation, we are in trouble. Our nation is in trouble. The church is in trouble. I want to be a church that is constantly looking that His glory would be known. Where is this God, this God who is able, this God who is able to do more, who is able to do more abundantly, who is able to do more abundantly than we can ask or think? Where is He at? He is going to be in His church. He is going to be in the workings of the church in the next generation. That's the church that we need to be. That's the church that we need to focus on. Would you all... Everybody in this room, just close your eyes. Man, go ahead and come back up, if you will. I want everybody to close their eyes. I want you to do something with me. I want you to be really still, and I want you to listen. I want you to take three deep breaths in and out. I want you to take your hands down beside your side. I want you to touch that chair that you're sitting in. I want you to just squeeze it. Rub your fingers up and down for just a moment. Everything that you're hearing, everything that you're touching, everything that you're smelling, every sense around you is, is material. You can look up here now. It's material. The sound, the smell, the the touch, it will all go away. But all that material 
is being used by our Lord in this church, in our gathering, in our family. For this generation and the next. And what's really cool, and I was thinking about this message, I have not shared from this passage of Scripture for, for six years. I went back and pulled out my message from six years ago from a file and just revisited and emotions welled up inside of me. Because when I shared this message six years ago, similar to this message, there's about 250 of us Grace Pointers around. And I shared a vision about building a campus for people who aren't even here yet. I said, God's going to lead them. We don't know their faces and we don't know their children's names and we don't know the children that will be born in our church. We, we don't know. But 200 people caught a vision of what God might do through them for 90% of them. Because they had a vision that God wanted to do something through them to build a campus, to be a church, to touch a generation. And it's really cool for you to set and to feel and to touch and to experience a little bit of 200 people, people's sacrificial gifts, faithful prayers, and you're living in the moment. But here's a statement that came to me when I was preparing for this week. And it, it disturbs me greatly to say it, but it's so true of myself. That when the marvelous work of God gets lost in the mundane of everyday life, we fail to worship. When, when the marvels of God get lost in just the mundane of everyday life, we fail to worship. And God wants worshipers. And so today, you're setting, you're setting in something. You're standing in something. Your children are being taught in something right now that six years ago was only a dream but you're sitting in the reality of the mundane of week after week, worship after worship, Sunday after Sunday. And yes, the mundane becomes the mundane only because we lose the marvelous. Let's go back. And let's fall in love with the marvelous work of God. And let's worship Him. Father, we bow before You because You're worthy of our praise. From our lips and from our life, Lord, fill us up. Fill us up. stand.